Hello everyone, my name is Sue Alberti. This is Uncommon. This podcast is brought to you by Neural Media. Are you an entrepreneur or marketer who needs help making podcasts, video or animation? Perhaps you don't have time to manage a freelancer or the budget to deal with an agency. Well, Neural Media can help you with simple and affordable content creation, saving you time and money by taking away the pain of producing that content. To learn more, head to neural.com slash media. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com slash media. Play around with our pricing or request a callback directly. Listeners to the show receive a special discount by using the promo code UNCOMMON. Welcome to another episode of UNCOMMON. My name's Jordan Michaelides and I'm your host. In this episode, I have for you Susan Alberti AC. Sue is the former managing director of Dancer Group, chairman of the Susan Alberti Research Foundation, former vice president of the Western Bulldogs, former national president of the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, and companion of the Order of Australia amongst an array of titles that she's held throughout her life. The football lady has certainly had a long and storied life rolling with the punches as they launched directly at her. She has three primary goals in life and, and one of those is creating a women's football league, finding a cure for diabetes and having her beloved Western Bulldogs win a premiership. And so far, she has two out of three and I would not be betting against her on the third. In the episode, of course, we covered a lot including factors for football club success, proudest football moment, civic mindedness and her father, early years of dancer group, building stoicism and fairness, type 1 diabetes and her daughter, AFLW and the term footy lady, and how she wants to be remembered as well. If you like the episode, leave a rating on your favorite podcast app, or if you want a shout out for next week, leave a written review on Apple Podcasts, share with your friends, take a screenshot and post on your Instagram story, tagging us at uncommon underscore show. If you want to watch the video for the episode, search uncommon show on YouTube and don't forget to like and subscribe. Show notes for all episodes can be found at neural.com slash podcast. With that being said, thanks for listening and I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Sue Alberti. Sue, we are live. How are you? Very well, thank you. Very thank you well. for inviting me to be here. Thanks for coming in. You're nice and early. I yes. expected you to be nice and early and prompt. Well, I've heard that. I don't like people waiting for me, so um, that's why I'm here. Yes. <laughs> now, how did you feel about the doggy season this year? Um, I was a bit disappointed, but it was certainly better than 2018. Yeah. Um, uh, we've still got a lot of young players. I mean, that's a story that a lot of people put out. There's young players, but we're a developing team. And if you saw what we did towards the end of the season, you know, winning all those games, uh, I was feeling pretty optimistic. Uh, I was hoping that maybe we could have cracked it and got into the finals, but we'll be there next year. Yeah, I am always, as a St Kilda supporter, very jealous of the fact that you got Beveridge. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a favourite son at St Kilda, and his father is a genius when it comes to selecting talent. Yes. And he's an, he's an exceptional coach. I'm sure you've, um, you've spoken to him many, many oh, yeah. times. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, there's one thing about football and the Bulldogs. So I've got a few uncles that barrack for the Bulldogs and um, seeing them win the final, not just the grand – you won the grand final in 2016, then you won the women's grand final in 18? Yes. 
Um, and in 16, I was the president of Footscray my first year as president. That's right, the VFL We won the team. grand final. Yeah. I only had to wait that year. <laughs> Peter Gordon had to wait a lot longer than me. So it's it, it gives me a sense that, yes, maybe at some point in future there will be that opportunity uh, for St Kilda to get there. But I had me thinking about, like, what, what do you think is the defining factor that makes a club successful in your experience? Is it personnel? Is it funding? Is it something else entirely that, that people often miss in a club? Well, about 20 years ago, we developed a business model where we could see that the club was going nowhere fast and we yeah. were in big trouble and we developed that business plan. And I think the whole club working together as one, we're a very cohesive club from the football department to all departments within the club and we're all in this together. It was a united um, a united team. It was mm. no exceptions. And that's what was my experience was. So the business model 20 years ago, we could see we were going nowhere. If we're going to stay in the league, uh, developing that, implementing that, and then, of course, working with all the various departments. And a good board, a strong board uh, where there's no um, no leaks. It's all very confidential and... That's how it's. That's how it was with me. Do you find that with those business plans per se, is it the fact that it exists and it's clearly defined that people can, I guess, jump on board to this yes. thing that yes. we're on? We're they on could to? see. Yes, we were able to explain to them what we were doing. They all embraced the whole thing and see what happened. Yeah, mm. it, it, yeah. It's interesting because the the talk about St Kilda. F- from a lot of supporters is that whole five-year plan thing because you can set out these plans and then if you miss it, mm-hmm. um, the media loves to sort of be like, oh, well, hey, yeah. by the way, you've got yeah. this thing here. It's very important to get your finances in order. The rest yeah. will flow on. I mean, it's very, very important. I mean, we're a very poor club, Yeah, very poor in the western suburbs of Melbourne. Who would have thought, you know, that we'd do what we've done? But we had to get our finances right, our sponsorship right, and the culture had to be right at the club and the culture was spot on. What do you think fixes finances more? Is it members, sponsors, success or something else in particular? Well, success didn't give us sponsorship. I mean, we didn't have a lot of success, did we? But I think it was the belief in what we could do. And again, all working together in harmony, which is what we did when I was on the board. It was a great place to be. We knew we were heading somewhere. Yeah. And I didn't think we'd get it as quickly as we did, although I was hoping. (laughs) And of course, that was wonderful. And of course, I retired the year we won the... The grand final. You yeah. always you always step down when you're at the top. Never when you're being asked to step down. Yeah, it's always it's always best to step down at your greatest moment. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I've got a question in deep in there somewhere, um, and we'll get into the AFLW and the Bulldogs further. But what do you think was your proudest moment? Was it the the advent of the AFLW, the Bulldogs winning the premiership, or the women's team winning their premiership? What stands out to you as the most personally happy moment in that football space? Well, of course, winning the premiership was incredible after 62 years, and that's a dream that I always wanted to see come true. But for me personally, seeing women given the same opportunities as their male counterparts, because mm. that was something I've been um, hoping for for probably over 50 years, and behind the scenes I've been doing a lot to try and make that happen and to see the women run out onto the ground uh, in the first year at the Premiership, when I took out the Premiership Cup, that to me was a defining moment in my life. Yeah. And it's something I'll never forget because I knew I played a part of history. Yeah, and a very big part. Mm. You can sort of see how 
for you personally that uh, there's a very strong connection between the I mean I've seen some photos of you standing there in the huddle at the St Kilda Sharks with the girls so I could sort of see that whereas in in AFL there's there's a lot more moving pieces and it's been around for as Mm. you say 62 years 62 years was it without a grand final well that was for the boys yeah (laughs) the girls well the girls do you delivered quickly but you're aware of how long women's football has been around uh, in Victoria, no, no. I mean, I know from personal experience playing with a lot of women up to the age of 15 mm-hmm. that many well, have I'll played. give you a little bit of history. Yeah. Well, and you it played. Goes, it goes, well, I played, yeah, that was a long time ago. I, was, <laughs> I had to retire at 15. But um, it goes back to about 1913 and, in fact, even further back. But it's in the history books. There's a book out by called Play On by Rob Hess, okay. a professor from um, Mel, um, uh, Victoria University. Okay. It started in 1913 when the men went to war. This is in Perth, Western Australia. Really? And the women slotted into the men's positions. So football has been around for women a long time. I always say to the men, you know, you've had about 150 years on us. (laughs) You know, give us a break. You know, 100 years is always, the first 100 years is always the hardest. So women have been playing football since 1913, officially. Yeah. It went back even further. But officially. Yeah. So it's not something that was created in the last 20, 30 years. No, that's for sure. Look, yeah. I, I agree with you on that. I'm sure it's been around for a very long I mean, the fact of, I th- I'm pretty sure my, this is something my grandmother used to talk about quite a lot. She didn't play, but yeah. is, is a similar thing. She's like, you know, the women used to play. It's like, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, that's interesting about in Perth. So did they play at the, was that the state level? Yeah, yeah, it was it was between two shops. Uh, two, uh, <laughs> no, I, I forget the name of the store, but as again, it's in that history book. But uh, it was between two stores, yeah. and the women played um, with the men, and of course, that's what wasn't going to last for a long time because of you know the male physique as opposed coming to the back, fact, yeah, mm, coming yeah. back from war and saying, yes. "Hey, it's yeah. our thing." But it was great. The women loved it. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine they're playing in these long pants and hats and, <laughs> oh, my God, uh, honestly, I don't know how they played football, but it, they did. It's always good to hear those little, you know, tidbits of history. Like, to think that this game was only created really round the corner because people got bored during the off-season of cricket. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the first official game was played between two schools, wasn't it? I think it was like Melbourne and Scotch College. Exactly, was, and I'm yeah. still involved with Scotch College. I, I, I'm their patron for the women's team. Really? Yeah. yeah. I heard somewhere that you were you're, you've been quite involved recently at um, at Siena. Yes, because you you attended school. Siena. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, what what have you been doing there? Well, when I attended Siena, there were 129 students, and we had two houses, and that was it. Okay. And of course, it's what, all changed. What were the houses back then? Oh, just ordinary houses, three-bedroom okay. homes, and that's where... Ah. So we were... Well, so houses, just three-bedroom houses. Right. So uh, it, was dwellings. A board, it was a boarding school back then? No, not no? at all, not at all. And ah, okay. 129 students, and of course, it grew and grew and grew, and um, uh, the nuns that taught me um, had a definite... Um, had a, they were, had a profound effect on me mm. as... as to doing the things that I do right up until this day about giving back, being kind, caring, all of the above. And um, they're quite landlocked there. I remember when they started doing the development after I left and going one, two, you know, going up, 
um, they contacted me a number of years ago and said, you know, uh, the records were not very good. Weathering was in writing and, I mean, it had been a long time since I've been at that school, a long, long time. And they came to see me and I said, well, I'll see what I can do to help you. You know, I'll go out there and see what I can do. And we were not talking fundraising at that point in time. They're trying to build up an alumni and I said, right, I know some of the girls that went to school with me and gave them their names yeah. and addresses, email addresses, which didn't exist when I went to school. <laughs> and uh, it all um, evolved from there. And then, of course, I became involved with the redevelopment and helped raise a lot of money. I gave a lot of money of my own because I felt um, it was important to do it and to show leadership. Yeah. And, of course, now the, the school hall now is named after me. Is it really? Yeah, it's the Susan Alberti Auditorium. So wow. when, I never get lost when I go there now. <laughs> I just look for my name. <laughs> I'm home. Yeah. But where did you – because I, I noticed you were born in Gippsland. You seem to have a very – like, albeit you're a decade and a half younger than my grandmother. Mm-hmm. You sort of – born in a similar area, went to a similar sort of school. She went to Sacre-Cœur. Oh, my daughter went there. Oh, did she? Here in Glenaris. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we couldn't afford that. Really? My, do- uh, my parents couldn't afford Sacre-Cœur. Oh, really? Oh, yes. No, the Sacre-Cœur back then – Jeez, I mean, maybe it's a boarding it's some, school. Yeah, it was a boarding school because there's there's absolutely well, I don't know. It's hard to tell because my my great grandfather was a printer in he printed the Gippsland local Gippsland okay. newspapers, mm-hmm. um, particularly for Foster and that surrounding region as mm-hmm. well. Um, I would not guess that they're the wealthy type. So either she had a scholarship or that's how it was. It must yeah. have been uh, a more achievable school to attend back then. But yeah, well. My parents didn't have the money. It just wasn't even thought about. I was born in Bensdale Mm. at the Bensdale Hospital and my father had just come out of the war. Oh, really? Yes. Where did he serve? Oh, Dad was – he was a drill sergeant. He trained the soldiers to go overseas. Really? He was a very fit man, my father. And uh, No, he didn't actually go overseas, but he he trained the soldiers. And he came out of the war after all that time and uh, joined the police force. Okay. And the year that he joined the police force was the year I was born. And Dad was then transferred to Melbourne, to Russell Street. I think it was Russell Street. And that's where his career started off in the police force. But I was born in Bensdale. Didn't have a lot of time there. uh, But I still go back there because I've still got relatives from Bensdale that still live there and still have businesses there. So uh, I'm a country girl at heart, really, I am. Where did you grow What what sort of were the suburbs? Was it Footscray? Never, ever lived in the west of Melbourne. Never, ever. So how did the Footscray thing come about? I know, I often get asked that. My father was stationed over that side of town at that time Uh, and the only way I was allowed to go to the football, he's gone to God now so it doesn't matter, (laughs) was if he took me, dropped me off and picked me up in a police car. In a police car as well. I know. The kids were scared of me. (laughs) So that's why I barracked for Footscray. And plus, he barracked for North Melbourne and I didn't like blue and white. And being the rebel that I am, I never did as I was told. Oh, that's only joking. I I like red, white and blue. Australian colours, American colours, French colours, you know. (laughs) So I thought... I like red, white, and blue better. And there's three colours. Why have two when you can have three? Yeah. So that's really why well, I barry for Footscray. I've, I read that and it said you and your you decided you and your sibling, my brother, your yeah. brother, were going to become Western Bulldogs yes. supporters. And uh, I was like, surely not. Surely there's some other story there, but it sounds like it. Richard was seven and I was six. And okay. we made a pact in blood, Oh, as we did at the time, <laughs> that we're going to barry for Footscray okay. for the rest of our lives, no matter what. Yeah. We lost more games than we won. but <laughs> I know, particularly during that era. Yeah. Um, you, you said before about how you felt that at Siena, <coughs> your 
that sort of civic mindedness came about. But I've got to wonder. I mean, your your dad was a police officer. He sort of um, he worked for uh, a few charities. As dad well? was a member of St. Vincent de Paul yeah, yeah. for about 55 years. My dad was a good man. Yeah. He he just he was just incredible. He was a kind and good and loving man and um, he instilled in me those values and my brother too. But yeah. more so me, I think. I picked up more of that than my brother did, although my brother's a, a very good man. But dad instilled in those values in me and, of course, the nuns contributed as well. Of course. They were strict, they were tough, they were hard, yeah. they were wonderful women. I love them. Did they let anyone write left-handed? Because that's one thing that my, my grandmother used to say. You know, they? honestly, I don't think I ever experienced that. Um, <laughs> I know I, they used to force you to use they, your right hand. Yeah, they, they felt it was like, uh, I, don't, I can't remember what she said. It's terrible. Yeah, because she was niece, left-handed. I've got a niece in my family who's left-handed and her daughter's now left-handed and doesn't make, and my granddaughter's left-handed. Yeah. So, Apparently, yeah. like at Sacre-Cœur, they used to, um, eventually they stopped doing it, but they used to tie your yeah, hand behind right. your back. I've heard that too. And yeah. she, used to, she used to debate... Um, how like she used to love getting in trouble, like yeah. seeing how much she could test them. She was just, she was I did cool. a bit of that too. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun though, particularly doing it with um with with nuns and priests and whatnot. It was um, even more fun when you played them on the basketball court because it was yeah. one way of getting back at them if they'd been giving you a hard time, <laughs> especially if you were a bit of basketballer than they were, and I was. <laughs> do you do you find that there's a particular lesson that you hold with you today from? either your father or mother in particular, and you might have seen it or they might have said it to you directly in particular? Oh, it was reinforced all the time from Dad. There were people worse off than me. Yeah. That, you know, it, it was important to be kind and caring. It was right throughout my whole life. Mm. I used to often wonder how I could be more caring and give more of myself. I had nothing much to give. Yeah. Well, I had nothing to give, actually. I certainly didn't have any money. And I would uh, I thought, well, how can I give back? And uh, I would walk my bus fare. And I was catching buses at six. We didn't have a car. No. So if you got somewhere, you had to walk somewhere. So um, I put my money in the mission boxes, which would make a difference. Uh-huh. And that money would be used for overseas missions. Did, did he have regular stories that he would utilise to showcase sort of that people were better off? Oh, I always Dad, find Dad saw some terrible sights in the police force. Really? I really do think it impacts on them. And uh, I've heard some stories, but then I've had got big ears too. I used to listen uh, what, talking, I heard my father talking to my mother and uh, Dad experienced some horrible things. Mm. But it didn't change his attitude to still being caring and good and kind. Yeah. It came from his parents too. Okay. Yeah, what did, what did they do? His mother was a concert pianist. Um, oh, she really? was a singing teacher because my father was a trained singer, um, a classical singer. And um, his dad, he was in sales and marketing. They lived in Bondi, New South Wales. I did that. They were very good people. They had four children, four boys, all brought up with the same sort of, you know, uh, being caring and giving back and uh, just a good family. I think they instilled those values in my father. Okay. And of course, he instilled them in me, although I think they're more well off dad's family than what we were, but they didn't make any difference to who I was. Wow. I wonder how, how did they make it down to Victoria? They didn't. Dad was, uh, they lived in Bondi, New South Wales, Dad's parents. Dad in the army, he was then brought back to Melbourne after he'd been uh, training in the army, came back to Melbourne. He met my mother, who was from Hamilton and Victoria. Uh So that's how Dad settled in Victoria in Melbourne. Right. But always went back to his parents two or three times a year to visit. Wow. It's funny you mention um, his parents were concert uh, pianists and or singers it's the same thing with um so although 
My great-grandfather was a printer by day at night. His wife was a concert pianist oh, and wow. he would play. I've actually got a little – you can probably see the photo on my desk there of him. She always used to say that um, – she actually passed away earlier this year, so she get, she left that for me. She always used to say that I looked very similar to to him and he played uh, He played the violin, piano oh, and all beautiful. that. Yeah. She was uh, she was a very nice lady, um, but yeah, it's it's funny those similarities in families from that that area. Well, our entertainment was around the piano. Mum, yeah. that was the only expensive thing we had. I think Mum paid that off. I play piano. I mm-hmm. studied at school. My brother plays the guitar, and our entertainment was around the piano. Dad would sing, Mum would play, and my brother would play the guitar, and that was our entertainment. And I have a love of music that people don't know about. Okay. I've loved it all my life. I, get me to any concert and I'll be there, whether it be classical, musical, whatever. Anything. Anything. Yeah. I, and when I'm ever in New York, um, I'm out every single night okay. going and seeing something or listening to something. You know, you, you mentioned about your, your dad and how he met your mother and stayed here in Melbourne. How did you meet Angelo? At a dance. Okay. Uh, I used to love dancing, ballroom dancing, as you did in those times back in the 60s. Uh, you did ballroom dancing. you go to various uh, town halls, whether it be Heidelberg, Hawthorne, Moorabbin. Yeah. Uh, there, there was a place in Mar- and Paran you could go to. And I met him dancing. And, of course, um, he... One of the first things he did when he came to Australia was to learn to dance. Really? Oh, yeah. Italians know how to dance. They yeah. are so good at dancing. Well, that era. Um, <laughs> not so much about now. I don't know. <laughs> and um, I could see him dancing and um, he, he looked a fantastic dancer. And I thought, oh, God, I hope he asked me to dance because I love dancing myself. <laughs> and, of course, um, I did eventually dance with him. Mm. But the thing what I couldn't work out was he never spoke. And I thought, oh, I've done something wrong. He, he didn't speak English. Right. Not a lick. Oh, yes and no, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. <laughs> um, and uh, I think he let his feet do the talking uh, that night. And he was the most incredible dancer. Yeah. And um, I sort of danced with him most of the night. And then, of course, my father came to pick me up, this big, strong-looking man with a moustache and dark hair. I think he looked like he belonged to the mafia um, in a police car. Yeah. Uh, to see that his daughter was okay. And he, and um, I think Angela got a big surprise yeah. when he saw my father was a policeman. And then he asked my father if he could take me out. I can't remember whether it was there or actually it was to another dance. That's okay. right. What was your dad's first impression of Angelo? Uh, he didn't mind because he didn't know he was Italian at that time. He thought he was German. Oh, really? Because mm-hmm. wow. he's blonde, blue-eyed and very good looking. Okay. Um, uh, Which he, part of Italy was he from? From Udine, northern Italy. Oh, okay. Yeah. Came from near the Dolomites. Yeah. Oh, beautiful uh, area. A little bit different to south and north. Of Very different. My father looked like he came from southern Italy. <laughs> He's tall, six foot two, strong, fit, healthy. <laughs> and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Loves a good solid Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, and Dad said, that's okay. Um, come over and we'll, we'll meet you. And, uh, of course, Angela didn't speak. Hardly a word of English. Yeah. How do you think how intimidating that was? I know. But at the same time, he was trying to learn English. He was reading the newspapers and started then going to night school. And yeah. Okay. Well, was because I'm interested because my – so my grandmother met a Greek gentleman as well at a dance. Um, he was lucky, though, because he spoke very good English because he went to he, – he came from Cyprus. And oh, Cyprus yes. was a um, – Yes. It was actually a protectorate of England back then. So yes. he went to an English school. 
Um, it helps. It helps a lot. And when he was actually looking up where to go to, he was looking at major cities in the world that didn't have a Greek newspaper with a large Greek population. He's like, okay. Melbourne, large Greek population, no paper whatsoever. Okay, I'm going to come here. And it was either here or Buenos Aires was another area. Really? Yeah. Well, see, Angela nearly went to South America. Yeah, a lot of them. He wanted to shoot kangaroos, though. Did he? That was the reason why he came. <laughs> oh, that's a story he told me. Uh-huh. No, he came here because he knew it was a good place. What did he do for work? Like, did he have a job before, you know, because you guys entered the construction space. Did mm-hmm. he do that before coming to Australia? Angelo went to a technical school in Italy where they taught you all trades for four years. Okay. And he was qualified in various trades, not just yeah. bricklaying, carpentry, everything. It's very different in Italy as it is here in Australia. And uh, he had a decision to make whether he went to South America or to Australia. He decided to go, go to Australia. And he was working in France just before he came to Australia, sleeping in a bus. That's yeah. the only, all he could afford. And he could see that there was no future for him in Italy, although he loved the country, but no future for him personally. Mm. So when he came over here, he already had skill. Okay. You know, skills. It was yeah. very, very good tradesman. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting how the the two of you met. Obviously, um, how long before, like after that first dance, till you guys got m- married? Oh boy, I didn't tell my parents he was Italian for six months because my really? father didn't like Italians because he'd had them as prisoners of war and he thought they were weak and blah, blah, uh-huh. blah all sorts of stories. And he had this preconceived idea that Italians were not strong. Well, did he change? I didn't have to change him. He could see for himself. Yeah. He was really, he admitted he was wrong and he was sorry about it. And as, I, mean, I couldn't tell Dad even his name because it gave it away. Because his name is really Angelino, not oh, Angelo. Really? Yeah, Little Angel. But even Angelo. Angelo. Well, it could be yeah. Greek too. And That's there were lots point. of Greeks at the time coming out, Greeks and Italians. They were just coming to the country and finding their way and doing amazing stuff. And they, But the thing that really um, my father loved most of all was his work ethic. And his, uh, he was such a gentleman towards me. That sold my father. Yeah. He just – he realised he made a huge mistake. Yeah. And that, be, yeah. that is one common thing amongst that Mediterranean culture is those two things are always – like you can be guaranteed you find people who are hardworking and mm. very, very respectful. And very family-minded. Very, very. And the so. family is everything. Do you know now in the family that my grandmother and grandfather had, every single, including the, my grandparents, every single son and their wife ran their businesses yeah. together and had their own business. That's what they did. Well, see, Angelo's brother came out eventually and they became partners. Yeah. Uh, and then the mother and then the sister. And of course, the sister wasn't. She went to university. She had her own separate um, career. But the two brothers worked together for quite some time. Yeah. Mm. It's one thing that my I think my grandmother really loved. Like She used to always comment that in a lot of Australian families, the man would go to work and the wife would stay at home. And then he'd come at home and start slogging beers as soon as it, this is a generalization know, obviously yes, but yes. Uh, whereas my my grand like she was involved straight away like she would have been invoicing but she was actually doing sales yeah um in the very very early years just because they had to well who else was going to do it if yeah. she didn't do it <laughs> exactly someone had to do it and yeah. so yeah someone would babysit the kids maybe the oldest son would babysit my dad um, little things like that that you sort of learn to appreciate as you hear the stories later on at Christmas dinner amazing, tables and stuff. So, I love it. It's, it's why I love stories, I yeah. think. I think it's that in particular. What have you learned? What did you learn from Angelo in particular? Uh, his work ethic. 
because I had the same type of ethic, work ethic as he did. Yeah. And we had a vision. We both had a vision and a dream. Because oh, what we, was that dream? We came, we had nothing. Yeah. So we had nothing to start off with. Okay. And we wanted, we wanted, we were driven people. Mm-hmm. We both wanted to be successful because I think I, it was innate in me. Uh, from a little kid, I think I was an entrepreneur at about the age of six. I was <laughs> trying to make cakes. Mum said I was a disaster. But anyhow, um, <laughs> trying to make cakes with her overseeing me all the time and to sell them yeah. and make some profit because okay. I wanted to help my family. Even though I'm Australian, I've still got that European way of doing things. Yeah. But I, I was not involved with Europeans at the time. But I think, you know, being an entrepreneur from about the age of six, I was wheeling and dealing. And I knew if I worked hard, I could be successful. And see, Angela had the same yeah. ideas And as so me. when you met each other, it sort of just clicked. Absolutely. We both had the same uh, view on life. Yeah. Mm. You you guys originally started the businesses Alberti Group, which yes, I, Alberti, fit, yeah, it was Alberti Construction. It used to be A and R Alberti originally, okay. then it became Alberti Constructions, and then it became Dan Sue. But Alberti was the two brothers, and I was working in a legal office. Uh, I was doing, oh, really? yeah, I was working in a legal office, and I could see that um, Angela was getting absolutely bogged down with work and paperwork, and and it was just. It just couldn't go on the way it was, and all of a sudden I became involved because I was interested uh, in what they were doing, yeah. uh, and I was actually fascinated in the building industry. And the more and more involved I got with the building industry, the more I wanted to know about it, and I started reading plans, computations, building sites. It all sort of all came together, and Angelo and I, we had a five-year plan at that time, as you could when you're in your 20s. I wouldn't say the same thing now at my <laughs> stage of life, maybe two years, but we had a five-year plan, okay. and we stuck to it. And, uh, do you remember that five year, that first five year yes, plan? Yes, I do. Still? One of my house paid off by the time I was thirty. Okay, was paid off by the time we were twenty eight. I was twenty eight. Wow, that was a that was a f- big plan of ours to have our house paid for. Okay, because we knew we could use it as equity for other stuff that we wanted to do. So I was quite young, and Angela was young too. So wanted to have four kids. That didn't happen. That was in the five year plan. Uh, okay. That was one box I couldn't tick. But um, yeah, we. We had big plans. Do you like when you guys first started? What were those early years like? Was it originally a construction business that morphed into, obviously, you did much larger constructions later on? Mm-hmm. But did you guys become uh, like owners of property as part of that process, as yeah. opposed to just constructors? It's a really interesting story why it all started in the building industry, like as in constructing, rather than Angela doing the manual uh, hard work. Um, we were married in the early 60s and Angela had a very nasty accident. He was boxing up some concrete. A stick went through his eye and as a consequence of Jeez. that, he had to have his eye removed in and out of hospital. That's probably another reason why I became so involved uh, is because I had to take over things. And then he had his kidney removed because of the medication he was taking for the eye. Again, he was in and out wow. of hospital. So he had, it was then, he, then he was minus one kidney. So... it and Angela was an absolute perfectionist with everything he did. If something was wrong, he'd smash it down. That would it start again. That's how he was about everything he did. He was, in fact, he was very, very clever in more ways than one, uh, financially, um, in the construction industry. So he decided we need to do something different. So he decided to buy some land, some industrial land in Brayside, which was absolutely That's right. nothing there. And... But just before then, he and his brother had just arrived. They decided to do build 16 flats. That's where he had the accident, actually. He was doing his own labouring. And 
we bought some land and decided to build a building, a spec building. I had a tenant almost immediately for that spec building that he had. And then he bought more and more and more land. But at such a frenetic pace, I couldn't keep up with the finances because he'd have something built and I didn't even have the money. It was just, it was like being on a merry-go-round. We were just getting bigger and bigger and better and better. We never advertised. It was all by word of mouth. This, you know, this um, Italian uh, handshake, that's all it meant to, uh, to Angela. You shook your hand, the deal's done. <laughs> Angelo was a man of his word when it came to business. Wow. Um, I certainly let the Italian way along the way. Um, that's how it's done. You give your word. There's no going backwards. And uh-huh. his brother was the same too. Yeah. And, of course, it got, we got bigger and bigger. But then uh, after about 20 years, Roger had other ideas, his brother. Uh, he was doing other things. And I think Angela found it difficult to work with him much longer. Uh, and, of course, family is so important, as I said before, about the Italian way. And they went their separate ways. I'm thinking about 83, 85. Uh, we decided to get bigger. Uh, we had also, uh, at the time when Roger was still there, just before he they separated, we had a plastics business. In fact, we really? had 400 staff. We had 300 in the building industry and we had three other businesses and another 100 staff. Jeez. So imagine the workload that I had seven <laughs> days a week and I was never trained for this. So I had to you learn very, do it. Absolutely. I had to learn very, very quickly as yeah. to how things are done. So we had all that too. We had a swimming pool business. We had a piggery, a farm. I used to work there on a Sunday. Really? I didn't know what it was like to have a holiday. All I knew was to work and to work hard. Yeah, well, it sounds, that sounds like my life right now. Mm. There's no, and that's the thing when you have a business, there is no such thing There's as no freezer. Letter. Yeah. If you want to be successful, you either got to do that or you don't. Yeah. You've got to get on with it, do it. If you want to be successful, it will not come yeah. to you. It's as simple as that. And um, like I, I think I haven't even had a holiday in a very, very – we're going on our first holiday in about two years. Which I waited nice. 15. Yeah. <laughs> and then I went on a bus tour with my daughter and then she got sick on me. So anyhow. Where, where was that bus tour? Oh, we went on a bus. We went to Los Angeles to Disneyland. Uh, okay. Because she was such a good student and yeah. I promised her I'd take her one day when I found the time and uh, it was nearly 15 years after um, we we never had a holiday, yeah. even over Christmas, we never had a holiday. Yeah. We just kept working. That's that's, that's one, how it was then. It, it is. It's one of the things that my dad always mentions to me as well. Same same with, with their business, my mum and my mum and him, they just, for I got to think when I was born, uh, that was sort of the 91 recession and... Uh, Owning a business, printing business was not a good thing to have. No, and they just, no. you know, for you, they had a mortgage and then previous business they had had gone bust with um, with my uncle and they like, they'd been held up with some tel- – like Telstra wanted every dollar yeah. on the contract for some stupid mobile phone, mm. which he had to pay off for years. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I just think like where they were then to where they eventually got to is quite remarkable and, it, and it's – it's me seeing them do that hard work is is the key thing. Well, you've got the work ethic now, haven't you? Yeah. You've learned it from them. I can't. It's like a, it's a double-edged sword. I can't ever stop. <laughs> That's the issue. I have to stop hey, listen, myself. listen, I still stop. can't stop. Yeah. I'm going to drop dead on the job. Yeah. I love what I do. I, I could never retire, um, no. but I, I have, you know, like I, I do get told that I have to slow down. Some, that's why we go down to see Lauren's parents yeah. in uh You've Mother got to Cove find some me time. You yeah. know, I do. I still find me time. Yeah. But I, when you love what you do and I don't have to do it, 
It's very different. Yeah, the yeah. only thing that gets me is just tiredness yes. or grumpiness because I've been sitting in front of a computer too yeah, long. Yeah. That's the that is the one issue I've got with the work that I do is sometimes I just don't like being in front of a computer too yeah. long. It does it does something to you, you know. Mm. Do, how do you sort of? I know you love to get into the garden. What's sort of your way? Is that your main way to decompress? Uh, no, I like walking. When I was trying to, you probably know I had been quite sick and I'd been quite overweight. Yeah. Uh, and I remember speaking to the researchers at Walter and Eliza because I have a lot to do with them. And I said, how can I exercise? I'm too damn fat and I'm not going to go to the gym. I'm not a lycra girl. And they said, walk. And I started walking. And okay. it started with a kilometre, five kilometres, ten kilometres. And of course... It's fantastic walking, and yeah. I like walking around looking at gardens. Uh-huh. I get a real buzz out of checking out people's gardens, <laughs> not checking out their houses, just because I think it's always an afterthought with a lot of people, uh-huh. is the garden. To me, is so important, the garden. I just adore the garden. I like in th- making things beautiful, like in the building yeah. side of things. The garden to me is just as important. It's funny as well when you get a hobby and now that you get into it, you see all – like my thing has been cinematography. So I'll be oh, yes. watching a movie and I'll be commenting on that to Lauren like how they filmed it and all yeah. that sort of stuff. I can imagine you sort of walking around. I do. And just looking at people's gardens like, oh, that's interesting. I like how they did I that. I think they should be doing something. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm a critique walking around and looking at people's gardens. But, but then I also get ideas yeah. for my own garden. We've got about three quarters of an acre and it's all English. Okay. We do have a few Australian natives, which are messy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, my choice is I do like Australian native, um, English. English gardens. What, why is that? They're just neater? Yeah, neater and more beautiful. Okay. The colours and yeah. the vibrancy and the, uh, the tones, it's just beautiful. Yeah, there's there's no greater thing than visiting the Ingri- English countryside. Absolutely. Lauren's mum's from uh, Yorkshire. So oh, wow. It's a be- the Yorkshire Dales is stunning. Yeah. Um, back, back on Dancer Group, um, is it, does it still exist today? No, I, I've wound down the business 10 years after Angelo died. It stands okay. for Daniel, Angelo and Susan. That's right. That's why we've got that name. And when okay. Angelo and Roger with the separate ways, um, we changed the name to Dansu. And I still have that number plate on my car. Do you really? Because I promised my daughter I'd never, ever lose that name. It's a great name. Yeah. And so, okay, so you wound down the business 10 years afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it's, it's fairly well documented about what happened to Angelo with the mm-hmm. accident. Yes. Which is very unfortunate. Um, you obviously had to take on board everything. It seems like for the next 10 to, to 15 years well, of really your life. I really was sharing the load, uh, heavy load, even yeah. before he died. That's why I think I was able to continue the way I did because I was already knew a lot about the business. Yeah. And, and I'd already been very interested and enjoyed what I was doing, uh, albeit it, it was quite a heavy workload and I was on my own. So it was quite difficult. I was on my own. And I was in the midst of a grief, shock, and mourning, I guess you could say. It was yeah. very tough. Yeah, what, how did you – that was one thing I was intrigued by. Like how did you maintain that sort of North Star? How did you not just fold over and just be like, well, you know what, I give up? It's easy to do that. Yeah. It's much harder to hang in there. And I had so many people looking to me for leadership, their livelihoods. And the Italian way is you look after your staff like family. Yeah. And I know Angelo would have done the same thing. So I felt I owed it to Angelo okay. that I would ensure that these people were looked after, that when I eventually did wind down the business, which I really wasn't going to do, but we had to get off the merry-go-round sooner or later, that everybody went on to another job and I was very happy about that. Yeah. yeah. The winding down, what did that look like? Was that 
uh, no longer taking on contracts or primarily just migrating towards holding and renting property yeah, as part it, of that process? I was still doing some projects. I was a registered builder. I was still doing some projects, but it was more of a bit of winding down and retaining a portfolio. Yeah. I mean, I'd done enough. Yeah. I had other things I wanted to do too. I was in aged care. I had five facilities as well. I was doing that as well. Jesus. As I know. That's what people say to me too. <laughs> <laughs> aged care. That, that is um, – do you still own many properties in the aged care space at all? No, I've sold off my share. My brother now manages that. Richard oh, okay. is still involved. Um, I became involved when I could see when I visited facilities for my parents and they were ageing. Okay. I didn't like what I saw. Yeah. It, it's not um, – that's one of those things. And I can I can tell you would be – I'm guessing you'd be the type that you never, ever, ever want to go do or go to any of those sort of places, right? Not yeah. some of the ones that I saw. Yeah. And the the ones we had was by word of mouth. It was a home to these people. It was so important to me. It was not just a business. Yeah. But these people had to feel like they were in their own home and cared for and loved. And that's what I found when I was trying to find somewhere for mum and dad. I didn't see any of that. And uh, anyhow, that's why I became involved. Okay. said to my brother, we can do better than this. Mm. Yeah, and that's that's how it came about. That's very interesting. Yeah, my, my grandmother was in an aged care. Unfortunately, she had dementia oh, that's for dreadful. about three years, which is a terrible, terrible disease. Well, I'm involved with a, f- a project down here in, in Victoria, a dementia village. I'm, really? Yeah, I'm their sponsor and ambassador. And, that's fascinating. Yeah, in, so is it just for people who have dementia? In Heathcote, yes. Okay. A village we're doing. I've, I've fronted up with some money for a feasibility. We've got a long way down the track. I think we've got uh, government on board. Uh, we've got a major bank on board. Yeah. That will be happening soon. Well, that was not to make money, by the way. That was because I could see a need for it. I went to speak at a function. A wonderful nurse mentioned to me about how difficult it was for people with dementia. I didn't like what I saw. I saw in the aged care facilities what happens to them. I thought, this is crazy. There's a, a Dutch initiative where they've got a dementia village in Holland, in Amsterdam, I think. And we're basing it on that, and uh, it will be a wonderful thing once once it's all up and running. Yeah, it reminds me we had um, a prior guest a few weeks ago whose mother had early onset Alzheimer's. Um, I should reach out to her and see, because she, she's always wanted to help in this space. She's tried to reach out to Dementia Australia, she's got quite a large audience yeah. um, on social media, like a very, very big audience. And she's been amazing for getting that out there and talking about it. And um She's just she's wanted to get involved in some projects. So I wonder if I should mention it to her. Absolutely, I, I know Dementia Australia, but the thing is, um, there are drugs now that are really yeah, stopping the progress of it. But I would hope very soon, because uh, I do a lot of research, um, we will have uh, we'll be able to tell who's going to get dementia and have preventative measures in place before it starts, before to, it starts to yes yeah. yes that's prevention is far better than the cure. I agree. I agree. Um, it's a terrible thing. My Yeah, as I said, my grandmother, she had v- vascular dementia, which is one of those things where you have a stroke and it starts oh, to affect terrible. you. Oh, it's terrible. An interesting point that I found in one of your interviews was about um, the fact that when Angelo was, was hit by that truck down at... Um, rubbish removal truck. Yeah. The rubbish removal truck. And you actually hired a private investigator to Absolutely. go find the person and they found them. The police couldn't find them, find him. Okay. And I said to my dad, who was alive at the time, I said, Dad, I owe it to Angelo. I've got to bring the perpetrator back to justice. I hired someone who 
did all his research. It was an ex-postman, actually. Really? Yeah, and he found him in the Northern Territory. How did he find... Don't ask me. That's what he does for a living. Wow. Or did for a living. I think he'd be well and truly retired now. Yeah. But um, he brought him back, but uh, I didn't get justice. Really? No. They could never prove it? Oh. Well, going to too much detail, that's for another day. But yeah. um, he got fined and penalised and and he thought it was, if I could be honest, a huge joke that he had his fare paid for to bring him down to court. He could visit his f- friends and wow. he never once said, I'm sorry. Wow. He just was not interested. Yeah, what, what a complete difference to how... That sort of thing is treated now. What really upset me more than anything, after the court case, you're not allowed to divulge that they've had prior convictions. He had a list as long as your arm. Wow. So he'd done it before. Yeah. And he got away with it again. And again. So justice, don't talk to me about justice. Angelo was gone. He was dead. It affected the whole family, affected business, affected everything. But that man got off scot-free. And Mm. I hope he remembers it every night he puts his head on the pillow, Mm. what he did to a family because he was in a hurry. Yeah, it's it's a very terrible thing. Mm. Um, it's it's disappointing to hear that that was the outcome. Well, to be honest, if ever I wanted to drive someone, drive over them, was that man. But I, it took all my courage not to smack not his to face in the court. I was just so upset yeah. uh, because I didn't get justice. Yeah, and I'm sure it happens to a lot of people. But uh, I remained calm. On the outside, but on the inside, I was fuming. Where, where do you think that stoicism came from? You know, like that, because that, that's a common theme amongst things mm. that have happened in your life. Oh, do I you think, think you're born with it? I think I was born with it, but also I grew up in a very tough area. And my very, my very best friend was raped and murdered. Mm. And I had to live through that. And um, I was in a neighborhood where, you know, it was <laughs> very dangerous. And I had to be tough. I had to be streetwise from a very early age. As I said, I was walking to the bus stop at six. I knew how to look over my shoulder and go in a different direction every morning. My father instilled in me. Yeah. So from a very early age, I was pretty tough. So if someone swung, you need you knew how to duck and swing back. Absolutely. Yeah. I didn't take it lying down. In yeah. fact, I defended my brother once. Really? A boy was picking on him, and I said, "You do that one more time, I'll fix you up." <laughs> and I picked him up and threw him in the blackberry bushes because we didn't have houses there. It was just blackberry bushes. He never picked on my brother again. Yeah. But I didn't know. I mean, I didn't physically attack people but he was being horrible to my brother yeah mm. you had to stand up for yourself absolutely in, in that era i, I had think. to i had to stand up for myself yeah. and it didn't mean shooting people it just meant you know i may be smaller than you but you're not going to get to me mm. i might be a woman but i can stand up to you big bully yeah and, and often in those years all those years ago they were not used to women standing up to them they were used to getting their own way well i tell you what they weren't getting in their own way with me and i've been like that all my life Sounds very much like my grandmother, Evelyn. Yes. <laughs> Except I'm Australian. Had, yeah. She had a very, very uh, strong belief in that as well, that's yeah. for sure. If I'm you, a belief in fairness. Yeah. That's what I, I think mean. that's what it is. I think it's it's just, it's not so much a an assertiveness or anything like that. It's it's about valuing what's right. Absolutely. Dad yeah. always taught me that and always to tell the truth. Yeah. No matter, sometimes you can get yourself into a bit of hot water. Yeah. Dad always... In, Encourage me to tell the truth. Um, I want to talk about type 1 diabetes. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned earlier, my brother's got type 1, Mm -hmm. um, which is a very tough thing to deal with. As I was saying off air, I I feel like my mum almost feels guilty about it. But 
I think I should say first of all, first of all, thank you, because uh, you know we did the the walk for cure so mm-hmm. many times mm-hmm. and got so many people involved. It's actually quite a fun day. Do you know um, when I tried to get that off the ground, I was knocked back. Really? What and do I they said, say? Uh, what if it rains? <laughs> I will say, well, stuff you. I'll <laughs> bring do an it umbrella. In- oh, you get, you get. It, there's a formula to it. You don't. Have, if it rains, well, it rains. You, there's a formula to it that you still get your sponsorship. Yeah. So I said, I'll do it in Sydney, and I'll do it in Melbourne. If you don't want to do it, okay. we did it in Sydney and Melbourne. And that was in 1994. Put plans in place in 92. 1994, we had our first walk. We raised nearly four hundred thousand dollars net. Wow. So, and then over that lifetime, it's easily thirty million plus. Oh, it's more. It's, it's 40, way more than that. Forty million now. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I, I saw it happen in America. I bought back the, the whole idea from America. Uh, they had been doing it, yeah. and I could see it could happen in this country. And there weren't a lot of walks around at the time, not like there are now. Walks and rides and runs and. And it, it's a beautiful walk in Melbourne it's around the lovely. lake. It's yeah. lovely. I never forget the first walk. Um, we didn't have any of the marquees or anything. In fact, yeah. my husband bought a half a. I think he put a whole half a beef in and chopped it up for the barbecue with a shop, with with a chop, uh, with a, uh, what do you call it, axe, with an axe. Yeah. God. And um, that was how basic it was. And I remember he went down to the milk bar to get some bread and he came back with about 12 different loaves of bread. That was our barbecue. Wow. But I remember when the kids did the walk, a number of them had type 1, and they came back and they said to me, well, it was called Walk for the Cure. We've done the walk, now where's the cure? And That's, I was sincere about that. That is a th- – this is a real issue with this disease is the, the mental aspect of it. I think it's actually the greatest issue because um, the same my mum mentioned to me when my brother was – my brother was diagnosed when we were about 12. We were on a holiday in the Sunshine Coast. And I remember this really well because he kept drinking yeah, cordial. and running to the toilet. Yeah, but for him, he was his blood sugar was 48. Oh, my God, he should have been in a coma. Yeah, he was nearly – that. he had to be rushed to hospital. They had no idea. They did the test and, and all that because he'd been drinking yeah, cordial like and condensed hell. milk. Oh, my God. But all we can do now is laugh in hindsight and think, well, you've got some fortitude to deal with that because 48, that is – Exceptionally dangerous. That is very, very high. Yeah, that's almost F- dead. F- fifty, and you're dead. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yes. Um, it is a psychosocial disease. It is, isn't it? Because it, the 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 constant we forget about, you know, when you've you've got a bit of a hangry mood swing, it's normally because you got low blood sugar, right, or lower than normal blood sugar. There's been a disturbance of some type, but when you got type one, it's just it's constant. 24 hours a day. Yeah. Never, ever goes away. Never goes away. No. And um, I guess that's why I'm, I can see where my mum's coming from. Maybe she feels a bit guilty about it. I think my brother's done incredibly well, even though he, I just think that he gets frustrated. And I've got a mate who's got it as well, and he gets very frustrated. Mm. But we're in an age now where there's a lot more things there to help them deal with it. There's a lot of... Technology, you know, pumps. Exactly, like the pumps. CGM. My brother now eats predominantly um, sort of like not a keto diet but a very um, high fat and protein diet so mm-hmm. he doesn't get as many spikes yeah. as he used to. So his mood's a lot better. Yeah. I'd be that it, that it ever used to be, um, mm. which is good. Um, where, where do you think we are with – because I know you left the JDRF in 2013 – where do you think we are when it comes to research for 
the well, cure and all that? I'll take you back a number of years. I became I was one of the founders of JDRF, or G, it was DYF, JDF, and then JDRF. Okay. So it's had an evolution. And I was one of the founders because when my daughter was diagnosed, there was absolutely nothing what, to support what year parents. was she diagnosed? 81. Okay. There yeah. was nothing around to support families and children. There was another organisation that supported adults, but type 2 is very different. People have got to get that message. Yes. It's through type 1, no fault of your own. Type yeah. 2, you can yeah. usually sort that one out. You can change it pretty quickly. If you want to. Yeah. If you want to. Um, but anyhow, I decided that something had to happen. We needed to have set up some sort of support group. We did, and we offered education and support, but we didn't offer any research because there was nothing happening. Uh, there were two researchers in this country at the time. In fact, I didn't have Google. I didn't have internet. I had white pages, yeah. yellow pages. So I rang around Australia to find out who was doing what to find two researchers. And I thought, mm, how can we offer research? And I'm not the only person involved in, in JDRF. We could see an international organisation that was doing research called JDRF in America. Okay. We were not JDRF then. We were different. We were DYF, uh, Diabetes Youth Foundation. But we decided in our wisdom that we would uh, become an affiliate okay. of the JDRF who were based in New York. Okay. Um, so that's where it all started, um, JDRF. They were doing research, some research. Right. And we knew that our researchers, if we could encourage them to become interested in diabetes research and provide them a pathway, whether it be... Uh, talk about it at university so when they come out they'll be interested in diabetes research well that's how it all happened through becoming an affiliate of JDRF which was based in America they have affiliates all around the world now I think they've got about 13 I used to chair that affiliate committee I did it for about three years um, so uh, all of a sudden we're able to get money into the country even though our, what happened was our researchers had to apply internationally judge by the international peers and then they'll fund it in US dollars Really? At that time, it was pretty good because you know, the dollar yeah, was, the exchange, it right. was pretty good. Yeah. So more and more interest then in diabetes research, more and more money coming into the country. And in my journey alone, since day dot, my journey, I've probably raised uh, over $200 million plus. That's oh. a conservative figure. So research became interesting in this country because of the pathways and the money. And of course, the government liked it too because money was coming into Australia, not leaving Australia, because at the time, we no money could ever leave the country. Any money we raised here stayed here, and then we topped it up with American money, which was coming in. Uh -huh. That's how it all started with JDRF, or with DYF, JDF, JDRF, and then JDRF International, because now they're truly international. They give out millions and millions now around the world. It's frustrating in terms of a cure. I've been on this journey now for nearly 40 years. I have seen it's very slow medical research. In fact, it's frustrating. If it's frustrating for me as a parent, well, imagine how it is for a person who's got the disease, living with it. And when your daughter comes to you and says, Mum, when will this damn thing be cured? Because at one time, JDRF were advocating that we'd have a cure by the year 2000, which was yeah. absolutely the wrong thing to do. Anyhow, they learnt their lesson. And whilst we've now... In Improved in technology, you know, pumps, insulin pumps, continuous glucose monitoring, because a lot of our children, unfortunately, will die in their sleep, go into a coma because their blood sugar goes so low, they don't know it's gone so low and they don't wake up. So I've headed up that organisation, another organisation, to get government to fund that, which they're doing now, which is fantastic. Huh. So technology's come a long way. In terms of medical research, um, I saw a scheme, um, some research that was happening. Well, as you know, in Canada, 
Banting and Best discovered insulin in 1922. That's in Canada. Yeah. When I was at an international conference, which I used to go at my own expense, I never had anyone pay for me. It was my choice. I discovered there was a program called um, the, the Islet Cell Transplantation Program, which was being done in Canada. The Yanks hate being, being beaten by the Canadians. They, they, did, they found insulin. Now they had this other scheme, this insulin um, islet um, transplantation program, taking islets from the cadaver and putting them back into the, into the patient. Uh-huh. At that time, going back 15 years ago, they needed two or three transplants into – it's just like a blood transfusion. Yeah, yeah. And then the person became insulin independent. Really? Yes. It's quite exciting. And um, but they needed immunosuppressant drugs, which were very potent. You know, cyclosporine uh, yeah. and so those it's, drugs. it's like having it's like being told you've got leukemia or something. Yeah. And you've well, got like having a heart transplant, and you've got to have all these anti-rejection drugs okay. to stop the body from rejecting something foreign. So anyhow, that was back in those days, and I could see there was potential in this country, but I knew I had to convince the government because it was a huge project. It was working well in Canada, and the Americans loved it because, you know, this is fantastic, this is great news, and the Canadians and their government just love them, you know. They're really advancing things. So I knew that it had potential, and I came back to Australia and I thought, who would listen to me? I had no sort of contacts of government. So I remember going and seeing the health minister, the federal health minister, and saying, um, if I put in X, will the government put in I was going to put in a number of millions of dollars and the government needed to put in 32. And the government agreed. Okay. I could not believe it. I could not believe it. I also remember when I went to see Tony Abbott, who was the health minister at the time, love him or hate him, that man got it. He understood medical research. He understood science. He understood what it meant to be a healthy person. And he's one of the healthiest health ministers I've ever seen, the way he (laughs) runs around and rides his bike. And he said to me, oh, is that the disease that you um, inject yourself with sugar? Um, no, Tony, he hadn't been briefed. He'd just got into the position, just moving his office that day. He hadn't been briefed. There was a dinner two weeks later at Canberra in Parliament House. He knew more about diabetes at that dinner than I knew in my whole lifetime. Really? He realised I caught him out. Well, he's certainly got a huge understanding now of, of diabetes, particularly type 1. So anyhow, the federal government coughed up $32 million to implement this uh, islet program. It's now in, in clinic. It's now in the hospital where it can happen now to people with got brittle diabetes. Okay. It's not open to everyone. We need donors to be able to do this. When you needed about three pancreases to do it at that time, say 15 years ago, now one pancreas can probably do three patients. It's a very, really? it's the advances are incredible. So we probably have about 40 in this country now, 40 patients who have had the transplant, the islet cell trans, ITP it's called, who are now insulin independent. And I know one in particular, she wrote me a note the other day, and this is what really touches my heart, when I know I've done something really good in my life, and I can be very happy about it. She said, Sue, it's my 10th anniversary since I had my islet transplant and I'm still insulin dependent. Do you realise what it's meant to me? I'm now back teaching. I can now look after my grandchildren. I can do all the things I did before I had diabetes when I was a child. That's just one person. We've got about 40 people now around this country who have now been successful with that program. Now, I'm not saying it's the answer to everything and I'm not saying it's the cure. How do you define a cure? I don't know. But, it's but it made, gives a resolution. And it gives them hope. 
Yeah. That something is actually happening. And then you've got Imneo, um, you've got um, stem cell um, research going on, which is... That's an interesting one. It is. That is gaining momentum. That's yeah. one thing that I'm looking towards. Because... So the reason why I'm fascinated by this is I, I'm I've always been interested by martial arts yes. and martial arts in martial arts stem cell yes. treatment yes. is huge, particularly for shoulder injuries. Okay. Um, and so I know of a few well-known people in that space who have had the stem cell treatment. They they typically go from America to I think it's Panama. Panama is one of the only places in Central America we mm. or one like it's it's affordable to get yeah. it done basically, and. Uh, yeah, the the use cases are fascinating. We're talking about people who, um, my dad's actually had this done, the complete damage of the rotator cuff where they've had to have that operation where they get the pin put yeah. in and everything. Angela had that. He fell off his motorbike. Did he? Yeah. Uh, it's a terrible. It's a terrible yeah. injury. Really. It's terrible. It's painful too. My dad just had. He's in a sling right yeah. now and he has to sleep upright for a week. Ooh. Yeah. Um, but apparently now the stem cell operation repairs that those ligaments and um yeah it's it's amazing and it was actually i only found about it because there was a podcast with um that famous Ameri uh, australian slash kiwi actor um well known for that rant mel gibson oh yes mel gibson's father has had it oh. for something and so he's out there talking about stem cell therapy um, you know, like he went on this podcast yeah. and the host had to like hold off, ask him all the questions about the bad things that he's done yeah. and the movies he's done to just talk about stem cell treatment. Well, I think it's really moving along. But the other thing is too, um, autoimmune diseases, all the research is going into autoimmune disease, whether it be cancer or whatever. I remember when my daughter was having trouble with her eyes and she was going blind in one of her eyes and they gave her a, a particular drug, an injection into her eye, which was to stop the proliferation of blood vessels in her eye, but they used it for cancer. Really? It was a cancer drug that stopped her from going blind. This is going back a number of years now. Who would have thought that could be used to stop the proliferation of blood vessels behind the eye as a result of retinopathy? And it, it was a cancer drug. Yeah. So all the research going into the autoimmune diseases, who knows? Yeah. We might find something there yeah. that will translate into diabetes. And, yeah. and it's, it's, yeah, it's. I'm particularly interested because, see, look, when I think about my brother, he's actually not too bad. Like, he's not that bad. Like, if you think about it, he's 26. He's had no real secondary issues. Based on what you're saying, your daughter seems to have had, like, quite a lot. Usually the first 20 years is okay. Okay. And if something is going to go wrong, it usually is the kidneys and then the eyes. But Danielle, um, I think the spirit was strong, but the flesh was weak. Okay. And I don't think Danielle was ever really accepting of the disease. I think she thought like everything she did, if she worked hard enough, it'd go away. Well, right. it didn't go away. So but it's not all gloom and doom. Some people live a very long and happy and healthy life. Okay. There's some of them that don't. Yeah. They're unfortunate. Um, that's just how it is, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah I think that there, there must be something genetic there where it affects some people more than most. I think so. I mean, yeah. you can be absolutely perfectly controlled and still have all these complications. Yeah. But they usually don't hit for about 20 years. Do they? Yes, okay. it takes 20 years. Children get it earlier, the complications, as opposed to type 2 because they haven't had the diabetes that long. And, yeah. uh, but the complications are exactly the same. Yeah, I... I I'm going to include a link for everyone to sort of a, an explainer on type 1 diabetes. It's actually a, a, 
it's it's like you learn about things that you've never heard of about before, like the islets thing. I'd, I'd never know that they existed until ITP program. The but but that particular what it actually affects, like as far as I'm aware, type one diabetes is where something gets into a certain area of the pancreas and kills. All this, the cells. All the cells in this area. It's yeah, so, yeah. so specific. But it can be bubbling away for 10 years before it actually, it's an acute onset. Yeah. It's not something, it's just all of a sudden, bang, you've got it. Yeah. But it's been bubbling away for years. A- and also, th- there's a correlation between you having this specific gene and potentially getting it. So, ha- my brother Hayden's got it. Um, me and my sister both have the gene because we get the gene test every year. Oh, you've year. done the test, have you? I okay. have, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I was just intrigued to see. Yeah. And, and as far as I'm aware, by my age now, it's unlikely that I'll get it. Well, we're getting close to a vaccine. Um, there's a call, It's called a rotavirus, which a lot of children get in their really? gut, in their stomach. And I think they're getting really close to developing a vaccine to prevent diabetes. Now, that's something I've been dreaming of for 30 years. Okay. And in fact, it's going on at the Walter and Eliza. And that's something I'm really excited about, okay. a vaccine. That's a very, Can you very imagine? I know. Mm. So, so you would get the vaccine at a young age and it would basically prevent... If you're predisposed, yes, yes. Wow. Yeah, I, I don't know who decides who gets what, but I'm not a doctor of medicine, that's for sure. But um, the vaccine would be incredible. Imagine if that was the cure. Oh, well, if you get a vaccine, that is a cure. It that, is. I talked to you before about saying... How do you define a cure? It is. It's a. It's basically a cure. If we can have a vaccine. And then so really the problem needs to be rooted from that point. If you have that cure, then you need to root down on the problem for the people who currently have it. And maybe it's that that transplant. Absolutely. Or stem cell. We, well, again, it's, um, it's an expensive procedure, but it's happening. We need donors, uh, you know, that, um, that will prepare to do that. Um, so it's... There's a lot of potential out there. You've got me excited yeah. now learning about this stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, I went to look and it's just, it's hard to know unless you're really at the well, forefront. Well, it's happening. I was chair of St. Vincent's for 14 years, St. Vincent's Institute for Medical Research, their foundation. So I really knew exactly what was going on there. And the, the head of the institute there, Professor Tom Kay, guess what he does? Type 1 diabetes. Really? He's the expert. Uh-huh. Oh, there's experts all around Australia, but he's the one that does the islet. Involved with the islet program. In fact, the lab where they separate the islets is named after me. Really? Oh, yeah. I'm so, I'm so proud of that because <laughs> I drove that because uh-huh. I think they all thought I was a bit of a nutcase. But anyhow. Well, we'll have, we might have to get him in to talk about it. Oh, Tom K is fantastic. <laughs> Professor Tom K. Professor Tom K. He's at, the, at St. Vincent's Institute. Yeah. Well, we've talked about the Bulldogs and I, I can see that there's a lot of times where you've spoken about that turnaround. We've spoke about the success of the Bulldogs and eventually the, the grand final in both teams, mm-hmm. which is quite remarkable. I found it funny that you named the biography The Footy Lady when I, some of the... I didn't name it. You Pe- didn't name it that? People kept... Co- Kept calling me. Oh, there's the footy lady. I know, but that's what I mean. Like yeah. it was used as initially as a bit of a jibe back yes. in the day. Yes. And now it's the name of your your biography, which I found exactly. hilarious. Exactly. I never. The, the people called me that. Little kids had come up to me and say, "Oh, you're the footy lady. You're the lady that lets me now play." I said, "I don't let you play football. You play football. Oh, but you're the footy lady." So it's stuck. I never set out to have a, a name like that. It's a good nickname. It's there in Wikipedia. Yeah. It's enshrined in uh, the Holy Grail that is uh, Oh, is Wikipedia. it? Okay. So, I haven't checked. <laughs> um, the AFLW, you were a major proponent of it. I think it was quite funny reading some of these interviews in the early years 
Um, I think Moana Hope spoke about the fact that she just assumed you owned oh. owned the league when when really you were donating money to I keep was it afloat. These per- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which was which just sort of showed like you know there was an audience for it. There was a talent base. It just needed the pathway. Um, and and I you know I was reading through and I saw this the fact that you'd had these conversations with Gillen and he said oh you know she's a very stern stern woman she always put her put her voice you know she's forward but she's not um, aggressive about it which I found yeah. qu- quite and funny. And he also said I'm scared of you. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Where, how early do you think the conversations with the AFL started for this becoming? its own thing. Well, there was already the local footy teams, the Victorian Women's Football League, and that's how – I mean, I've been watching the progression over the years because I wanted to see something happen and I didn't know how I could make it happen because I'd been dreaming about this since I was about 15 because I thought it was so unfair and I thought this is not right and I couldn't do anything about it at the time at 15 but I thought one day, one day I'll make a difference. I'm a bit of a dreamer. Okay. Uh, I am a dreamer actually. I'm a bit of a visionary too and I thought I went to a luncheon, the Victorian Women's Football League. This is back back, um, many, many years ago and I love people. I like talking to people and I wanted to find out what they were doing and they asked me to speak about what I do. And they told me that they were in big, big trouble financially. They were ready to close women's football, just fold. And I thought, now, here's my opportunity. I'm one of these impulse people. You know, I thought, this is right here and now I can do something. So they were ready to fold. And I thought, I'll write it a check. It'll help them to get a full-time member of staff, get things moving, try and get back on track, get some sponsorship, get things happening because these women were passionate. They were some of the nicest people I've ever, ever met in my life. Humble, kind, caring, everything that I hoped I'd been in my life. Well, that started things off. The whole room burst into tears. I've never done that before. It made people cry like that. They were so excited. Oh, God, 20 years ago. Okay, wow. So things had been going on in the background with women playing footy, but at that very local level. And there wasn't the huge interest in playing footy then because they knew there was no career path, there was no pathway. Then I continued to fund them. And then we got to the stage of an exhibition match. Okay. And I went to my board when I was on the board and said, I'd like. I wasn't getting any funding from them because they were worried about the men and the resources for the men. And let's face it, the Bulldogs were not a rich club. We no. don't have a lot of extra cash. We're a mean, lean machine at the Bulldogs. So I got talking with Melbourne. I did. I said, well, if the Bulldogs can't do it, I'll do it myself under the name of the Western Bulldogs. So I started funding. I did three years in a row funding the exhibition game of the Bulldogs. And then, of course, Melbourne got a wonderful sponsor support. I think it was a company, a chemical company. They did the same. And that's how it all started. I funded the exhibition team uh-huh. for three years. And, of course, they funded theirs. And, of course, they came, they saw, and, yes, we did conquer. And when mm. did you know, th- when was the moment you realised that it was potentially going to be, you know, I'm just trying to think of these backroom conversations of yeah, okay. pushing the likes well, of Gillen. I, and- I knew I had to go to the top and speak to the person at the top. That's okay. the only way I operate. So I thought he'll never see me. He'll probably think I'm some raving lunatic, but anyhow, I say that with all humility. (laughs) And just before Christmas, I got an appointment with Gil. Okay. And I went into him and I thought, myself before, I thought, I've got to have some sort of plan. I walked in and I said, uh, uh, because he knew about me through the Western Bulldogs, you know, I wasn't uh, wasn't an unknown entity. uh, Yeah. And I said, Gil, I want to have a breakfast. 
I want to launch women's football. I want to talk about women's football. I want to get this the interest. And I thought, he's going to show me out of the office. Because I did see the previous CEO and he was not interested in me, that I was a nutcase. I'm okay. That's fine. He truly wasn't interested. Maybe he was and didn't tell me, but he didn't make it clear to me that he was interested. So I thought, well, right, I'll go, I'll go and see Gil. And I did. And I saw him at breakfast. He said, when is it? I said, oh, March, I think it was. I'll be there. Um, put in the diary, he said to his EA. What else do you need? I've never done a deal like this in my life before where, <laughs> what else do you need? I need marketing. I need blah, blah, blah. Okay, I'll get my team to help you. I thought, I can't believe this. I walked out of that office after shaking his hand and I thought, I hope this is not all talk. I hope this is the real deal. I walked out and it was three days before Christmas. My, all my Christmases came at once. He kept to his word. He kept to everything he said he'd do. He came and he said he was scared of me. Oh, yeah, as if he's scared of me. <laughs> he spoke beautifully. He encouraged women to play football. As I said, love him or hate him, just like Tony. He was the catalyst for women playing football. Mm -hmm. He believed it. He's a smart businessman. He knew the bottom line, yeah, what that meant to the AFL. He's not a fool. 50% yeah. of people, women, go to the footy. But he knew there was a lot of pent-up frustration. He knew all that behind the scenes. Yeah. I didn't have to tell him really this. I think I was the one that went in there and said, put it on the line. I want to do this. Yeah. So please work with me. Well, He just been... needed the catalyst. Yeah. Yeah, and it's saying that when – see, I was looking at a, creating a business with um, – with my uncle years ago, and it was around. It was a product around AFL soccer, etc. And we were looking at the numbers of mm. participation at professional levels and junior levels. And the big thing, I, I know that they at AFL House were they they must be aware of what was happening in soccer, because so and you can see that in um, uh, the Davy girl, um, Brianna, Davey. Brianna Davey. Yeah, from St Gilda. Because I know the Davy sisters. Yeah, um, she's a lovely person. Now. She previously played soccer, right? Because your pathway was soccer or basketball or netball, and yeah. that was it. You couldn't go. You got to 15, and what do you do? And so they must have worked it out years ago. They just sort of had to work out how That's to eventually That's why they brought evolve. it forward, because they knew they are going to get caught out. Yeah. I said, he's smart. He's a smart man, Gil. He yeah. knew what was going on. We had to get in there before. You know, um, yeah. the others got stronger. And look, I don't really mind what sport a woman plays, so long as they play something. Yeah. And keep fit and healthy. Although I just love, happen to love AFL football. Well, you played it. I so played you it, wanted... but I played other sports too. I yeah. played squash, uh, basketball, tennis. I played a lot of sport, but I just happened to like AFL. Hmm. Yeah, it's, and, and so how long after that luncheon that Gillen was at? Didn't take long. It was so, off and running, up really? and running. Wow. And then it all just started happening behind closed doors. But I, perhaps I was the catalyst. There were some other wonderful people too doing things behind the scenes. But I guess I was in a position that they weren't in to be able to fund and get things happening. But I, Australia's been pretty good to me. They've been pretty successful. They've been good to me, Australia. And yeah. it was my opportunity to do what I've been dreaming on for years. Yeah. It's it's very good to see it now. I mean, I'm, I'm excited. St Kilda has got a women's yes, team next year. You've got Peter Searle as your coach. I know. Sarah on Sunday, <laughs> she's she used to be at the Bulldogs. Yeah, she's excellent. Well, she she didn't she coach Port Melbourne to um, a premiership. Yes, 
with Gary Ayres. That's right. So, and then she coached, I think it was the St Kilda uh, Sharks to a premiership. I'm their patron and I'm their sponsor. Uh I was there two weeks ago. We won the premiership. Yeah. They're, They're a very good team. Like and they're they, a very they, good club I mean, they too. played in the grand final yeah. against Collingwood, didn't they? But pe- yes, yes. Uh, just recently, that was. Oh, no, no, it was a semi final. Yeah. Prelim, sorry. They, they lost the prelim yes, and they then did. it was Doggies. Was it Doggies Collingwood in the final? Yes, I was there last Sunday. Yeah. And Collingwood won it. I didn't care who won, to yeah. be honest. It's a good thing. Women won. Yeah. I love my dogs, but I don't care. It's all about the women. Well, to be honest, I do have a bias to St Kilda, so I hope they can go out oh, next year. You'll be and a good win. team. Yeah. St Kilda will have a very good team, and Peter is one of the best. Yeah. She'll be the only female coach, but she's got she's played the game for years herself, a fearless footballer, yeah. a good mum, um, just a terrific person. I love Peter. Yeah, I'm very excited to see that, see that play out, I guess. Before we get into some rapid-fire questions, I've got to ask, when it comes to recognition, I mean, there's so many titles, awards. I think I was saying in the kitchen earlier that um, the cup at one point was named after you. Yeah, yeah. Um, what have we got here? Uh, we've got Victorian of the Year, Melbourne of the Year. Obviously, you're a member, officer, and companion of the Order of Australia. Arguably one of the very few women who's got all three. I know. And I was looking at that on the actual... Um, the honour roll. There's, mm. there's not that many that have all three. No, I was told by a minister, one of the very few women. So yeah. it's pretty good for women. It's actually there on the Wikipedia page. That they, they put them in brackets of people who have oh, certain okay. levels okay. and so forth and then people who've oh, got I haven't three. Looked that up, there's yeah. actually not that many that really? have all three. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I'm curious, how do you want to be remembered? What do you want your legacy to be? I've made a difference. Yeah. A difference in the things that meant, were so important to me. Mm. Um, medical research, I know I've made a difference and I know I haven't wasted my life. Um, as I get to the end of my life, I know that I've made a huge difference. I really have in the way of medical research. Um, a dream of mine was, I had three dreams, three wishes actually. The Bulldogs to win a premiership. Yeah. Uh, the girls to get a, a league of their own, which is something I always wanted. They've got their league of their own. And I'll keep working on that as long as I've got breath in me. But the third one, I haven't got it yet. And I'm hoping I'll be able to find that before I die. And that's a cure for diabetes. Because it's something I've been working on for 40 years. So I hope I can be remembered for all three. And I've been able to accomplish all three. But if I don't, I know I've made a difference in the world that I live in. And I've given back. And I'm very satisfied with what I've done. Well, I think on the point of diabetes, it could be that maybe you're the giant that people's you know, like they stand on your shoulders later on oh, when they I find so. that cure. I mean, I just want uh, more and more uh, students to be interested in diabetes research and come up with the cures and offer the hope to the patients who are diagnosed with this insidious disease. Mm. It just never goes away. And um, and also the other thing that I really enjoy doing is helping women in research because 60% of our researchers are women. They get a pretty raw deal. They don't get the support, but they're getting it now. That's something I've been able to do as well, mm. particularly at St Vincent's Institute. Women can now go off and have families and have research assistants come in. I've funded and raised a lot of money there to help those young women to have their families mm-hmm. uh, they're just entitled to have a family as the bloke is so that's something else I've enjoyed doing along the way so I'm always looking for challenges but I'm also looking to sincerely make a difference yeah. in their lives well I do think that the those three things you will definitely stand out in those areas I think the the recognition awards are obvious but I'm sure it's when you get to meet those people who come up to you and say 
oh, you're the footy lady, yeah, that get, that's when it matters the most. You've got no idea what that means to me. Yeah. Uh, it just, I get notes from little kids, you know, and they write me notes. And uh, whenever I'm asked to go and speak at a school, I can never say no. Yeah. I mean, I, I do a lot of that. But <laughs> kids I love, they've got stars in their eyes. And, yeah. And then when I hear they've got diabetes and I come up to me and tell you, that really touches me. Yeah. I know what life's in ahead of them. It's very hard. Mm. Look, the, these rapid fire questions, sure. short and sharp. What's your morning routine look like? Get up at five o'clock, five, five thirty. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm already working by seven uh, in my office. Um, so that's what I do first thing in the morning. I get up about five, five thirty. But that goes back to the good old days of the building industry. I can't sleep in because I had to be because up early. Be up well, I get caught in my pajamas if I didn't, because the blokes would come there want planes and whatever, and I had to be dressed. So it goes back to the good old days. So I'm <laughs> up at five, five thirty. What about? At, e- at your evening, how do you sort of decompress at night? Well, I do try to go for a walk. I do most nights go for a walk. Okay. That's very important to me that I just chill out. Um, I have, most times my husband comes with me, which is really good. But if he doesn't, I still do it. I actually have a walking machine if I can't get out because I watch the news while I'm on the walking machine. Okay. So I get a half an hour nonstop of watching ABC News. ABC is your go-to? Well, there's no ads. Okay. <laughs> And I don't have to read a book while I'm on the walking machine so I can watch the news and I get a complete news for 30. I watch the other stations too, but that's what I like to. It's the ads are killer though. Oh, God. Anyhow, they've got to to make money somehow. (laughs) So I do that. Mm. Okay. Well, what's in in the fridge at home? All very healthy food. Um, When I say in the fridge right now, I've got various types of cheese, yogurt. I have fish. I I don't like chicken very much. I've gone off chicken. Yeah. But do I have healthy food in my fridge? I mean, I've been, I'm half the size what I used to be. I've been a very sick person. I've been morbidly obese and health is wealth for me. And I need to stay that way as long as I can to do the things that I love doing. Yeah. Well, that was one thing that Lauren commented on. It's amazing. I think you you lost 56 kilos or something. 58. 58. (laughs) Don't forget the other two kilos. (laughs) What's your fish of choice? Uh, I think I like whiting, actually. Do you? I like a grilled, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Salmon's my go-to. I don't mind salmon. No, I don't mind salmon. It's yeah. quite good to, so long as it's cooked properly and it's not raw. Do you know, I um, it's funny you mention about health as well. I had, um, I basically had anxiety-related issues because of my food yeah. issues, IBS and whatnot. And it, it got me to a point where I was only eating a certain things and actually really affected my health. And I, I found that, Eating more and more like your ancestors in a healthy way is very important. I think that there's definitely a correlation there with um, maybe in our families if we've got that sort of Anglo-Saxon plus Mediterranean background that a lot of the Western diet today doesn't really suit that. Like if now I primarily just eat fish and veggies and stuff like that. I love fish. I really do. Everything has turned around. Well, I thought I had energy when I was obese. Yeah. Now you can't stop me. Yeah. Husband calls me the pretty bunny. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. I like mm. that. All right. Best purchase under $200? I think when I was my first job and I bought a string of pearls and I've been in love with pearls all my life and I think as a material thing for myself was something that was a lot of money. Yeah. But I've still got them. Do you really? I still have them. Wow. Albeit my pearls have got a little bit bigger over the years <laughs> and a bit, little bit more <laughs> better. have <laughs> improved in the quality. I've still got those pearls. What and they say, remind me of that. What, 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 what do you so like about the pearls? They're just beautiful. Yeah. They're just 
I just think they're simple and beautiful jewellery. I don't like anything large or or gaudy or colourful. Shiny. Yeah, I'm just pretty conservative. Yeah. Pearls are quite an amazing thing when you think about it, the way that they're collected as oh, well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But uh, that was my biggest and one of my best purchases. Now, if people want to connect with you on the internet, I notice you're active on Twitter. Mm-hmm. You like you like your retweets and whatnot. Some yes. funny little uh, clips that you've retweeted there. Um, do you? Th- where's the best way that people can learn about what you're up to and, and doing on a weekly and monthly basis? Well, you can follow me on my Facebook. I personally don't have one, but okay. my medical research foundation is. This is Alberti Medical Research Foundation. Mm-hmm. You find me on Facebook. It tells you what I'm doing, whether it be the area of sport or in medicine or medical research, it's all there. So I try to keep people up to speed because mm-hmm. I'm very active in that foundation. Okay. And we'll, we'll make sure we link all of that, link to Twitter and whatnot as well. But thank um, Sue, thank you so much for coming in. It's a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you for having me. Cheers. Thank you for making it to the end. Before you run off, subscribe if you enjoyed this episode or do leave us a rating. For Instagram, go follow us on at uncommon underscore podcast. For YouTube, search uncommon podcast and don't forget to subscribe if you're watching this video. Also, give us a like or leave a comment on what you thought about the episode. But until next time, thanks so much for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Neural Media. Are you an entrepreneur or marketer who needs help making podcasts, video, or animation? Perhaps you don't have time to manage a freelancer or the budget to deal with an agency. Well, Neural Media can help you with simple and affordable content creation, saving you time and money by taking away the pain of producing that content. To learn more, head to neural.com slash media. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com slash media, play around with our pricing or request a callback directly. Listeners to the show receive a special discount by using the promo code UNCOMMON.